Well, good morning. This morning, my topic, as you know, Diana and the Adult Spiritual Formation Committee have been talking about the matter of call. How are we called? And this morning, I was asked to speak about pilgrimage and what are we called to look at as Christians or as people of pilgrims. Um, One of the issues that I find is that people say, well, are we pilgrims? Well, you can, of course, say in the modern-day lingo, there are the pilgrims of Massachusetts. There are the pilgrims who was, were actually here four years before 1620, um, even maybe a few years before that, who, of course, celebrated the very first Thanksgiving in the Barclay Plantation in Virginia. Now, those are pilgrims. There are those who go in concentric circles, who make life journeys who are required as Muslims to go to Mecca. Those are pilgrims. There are those who go out and walk, like some of the people in this parish with myself, a few years back, two years ago, two summers ago, we went to northern England, and we walked from the mainland across the mud flats when the, where there is a, a, a tidal island of Lindisfarne, and at certain points of the year, at, point, at certain points of the day, it's completely flooded, and at certain times of the day, the tidal floods recede, and there are mud flats and a little bit of raised dry land that you can go across. Now, we walked the mud flats. Now, were we pilgrims? Yes, we were pilgrims. When we think about pilgrims, though, each of us is a pilgrim. When we think about St. Paul, who talks about in his letters, pilgrims and strangers, that's us. We are the brothers and sisters, whether it's the Corinthians or the Colossians or the Thessalonians. We are the pilgrims, the disciples, the followers of the way. This morning in my my sermon, I actually talk about that, that John talks about the way, the holy place, the holy highway, that place out in the wilderness made straight for the coming of the Lord. Each of us has that in our hearts, and each of us has that in our lives, that we're called to be pilgrims, disciples of Jesus. Now, you may wonder, what was it that caused me? Well, I, I, as a very precocious child, um, my parents are visiting this weekend, and my brother pointed out that my cousin, who was probably one of my least favorite people growing up, because he was a complete jock, I was not. And I read books. He did not. And I'm thrilled to know that his youngest son is not a jock at all and reads books. And his highest aspirations are to go to Harvard. Now, I want to change that piece because I want him to go to Yale, not Harvard. But I love the fact that, lo, these years later, he has a son like me instead of him. Um, But I say that because, as a young person, my grandfather and I spent copious hours studying maps 
reading books, probably books that I probably should never have been reading, not because they were too advanced in some sort of salacious way, but just because they just probably were books that probably were a little advanced at times. My grandfather read them, so I read them. And then I began to, to dream and to scheme and to think about all those things across the world, all those places that I and others might want to see. And as the world got smaller and smaller, the world for me got smaller and smaller. Um, one of the things that I love more than anything else about travel is that it's not about the people, it's not about the places you go or the things you see, it's about the people you meet along the way. It's the people that you have intimate discussions and share common stories with. Or they may be worlds apart from where you are, but they have something to tell you. They have something to share. And it's those intimate encounters that bring us, I think, closer to knowing what does the image of God look like. What is the image of God? We're made in the image of God, but that doesn't mean that we by ourselves are the image of God. It means that we're a part of that image. It means that women in South Africa and men in South India and people in Australia and us all have something very in common. We all have, for instance, as Anglicans, we all have the prayer book. And we, as people of the book, not, not the Koran, not the Bible, but as people, as Episcopalians or Anglicans, we're people of the book. We're people of the Book of Common Prayer that has expanded out beyond the English shores with every time that, that the colonization or the, mission, or the missionaries went out, they took the prayer book with them. Now, I talked about the fact that pilgrims came to the shores of Jamestown, founded the colony of Jamestown. Pilgrims came and founded the colony at the Massachusetts Bay Colony, or Plymouth. Even before that, Sir Francis Drake was out in California at where modern-day San Francisco is, celebrating the Eucharist for the very first time with his chaplain, with a prayer book. And so when we travel, more importantly, when we become pilgrims and go on pilgrimage, each of those days, each of those miles, allows us to become something different. It allows us to become people of God, encountering other people of God. And this morning, I, I handed out, or asked, I asked Charles and Bill to hand out for you a sort of threefold try here. And I wanted to say something about what one is called to be. Obviously, you get my, my call. My call as a priest started very, very young. Um, and then, as typically most priests, or most young people aspiring to be a priest or thinking about the priesthood, I then ran away from it for a long, long time. And I continued to talk about how does one do other things but necessarily not become a priest. And as I was in my mid-20s, I began to realize that's what God was calling me to do. So that's a piece of my call, my call to be a priest. I think sometimes that we're each in our own way, called. I think that's one of the marvelous things about this spiritual formation series this year, that each of us 
has a call. Each of us has an innate, innate sense, not just of your vocation, but also of your advocations. I've been very privileged, I tell people from time to time, because my vocation allows me to embrace my advocations, those things that I love most in the world, which are meeting people and traveling. If I was to set off and be traveling, people would say, oh, well, if he's always traveling, he'd be so happy. That's not necessarily true. I think pilgrims have to, at the, at the heart of who they are, they must have a home base. They have to have a place where they call home. And it's from that place that pilgrims radiate out from. Because you have to have, in any sense of who you are, the ethos of who you are, before you can go out and share with others and experience their otherness and their difference. And so it's been an amazing experience to be able to say, over the years that I've lived in Washington and that I've lived in Nashville or Mobile or now in Summit. Fortunately, we've landed here for a while and we're very pleased about that. And this is a place we call home. When you look at this experience, these pages, the very first, all those little dots, if you look with me on the front page, each one of those dots is a holy place. It's either a Celtic well, it's a ruin of an abbey, it's an actual modern-day cathedral. It could be just a little rock, sort of like out beyond Plymouth. And something holy, something sacred happened in each of those spots. And each of those spots calls out to the people who live there. But each of those spots also call out to us as modern-day Christians who have our beginning with English-speaking Christendom. Now, whether you're originally Orthodox or Roman Catholic or Presbyterian if you now come and succeed, if, if you see yourself in this place as an Episcopalian, as an Anglican, the heart of English Christendom is not in Rome or Constantinople. For English speakers around the world, and this is not just, let me be very clear, this is not just Episcopalians and Anglicans. This is for Presbyterians. This is for English-speaking Lutherans. This is anyone who speaks English. English around the world as their first language, your home is in Canterbury. Now, you may wonder, what does that mean? But it means that for English speakers around the globe who are not Roman Catholic or Orthodox, their home is Canterbury. It means it's just as important as the Vatican. It's the place that we go now, if you look at the next page, it again gives you lots of other, few less dots, but it gives you a sense of those historic sites, mostly cathedrals. It's geared down, mostly cathedrals and abbeys that remain. And then if at the top of it, it says the pilgrim routes to Canterbury. And then if you look at your last page, the third page, it gives you a much more broad, broken down, blown up version of what does it do, how does one travel the 120 miles from Winchester to Canterbury? 
Now that gives you a sense that pilgrimage is rhythmic. That you begin with the you begin at the beginning, wherever that is, and you go to a destination. The destination for many has been Canterbury. It doesn't mean that every time I take pilgrims traveling that we go to Canterbury. It does, however, mean that we pray by the prayer book, we read by the Bible, we have daily prayers, and we also are doing something much more than that. Someone said to me once, oh, I don't know if I could ever go to pilgrimage with you. You all, I have this image of you all crawling across the land on your knees. And I've said, oh, no, that's not pilgrimage. Pilgrimage is not just that. It's also about meeting people culturally. It's about enjoying great food. And it's about, in fact, just immersing ourselves, encapsulating ourselves by the culture that we drop into. So whether that means that we drop into modern-day Albania or whether that means we go to Israel or that means that we go to Canterbury, each one of those is a journey and each one of those is epic in the way of the things that you learn along the way. Now, when we talk about the way, if we back up slightly... When Jesus had died, well, even before he died, the authorities at the time were calling Jesus and his followers as people of the way. Now, sometimes there are those who say it was derogatory. There are others who say, oh, no, they embraced it, and therefore it became part of the Christian movement. For Jesus, however, the authorities started it by saying, those over there, those followers of the way, the way being the way of that man, that Galilean, and that Nazarene. And then the way became that as people began to go through those centuries as martyrs and as pilgrims, they began to embrace their identity and say, we are followers of the way. We are followers of the Jesus movement. That's what Michael Curry, our presiding bishop, would say. We have been followers of the Jesus movement since he died on the cross and rose three days later. We have been following what those who knew his story and followed his example and told it year after year after year. We have been following in his footsteps and the footsteps of his disciples. And of course, I'm not a huge proponent of Paul, but Paul, I believe, was a pretty nasty man, but he was a pretty great theologian. And, and you have to sometimes distinguish between who are really great theologians and aren't particularly the nicest people on earth. In fact, I would say the most majority of, not, of wonderful theologians today actually are in ivory tower somewhere, piled up with books around them, and if you actually walked in to meet them, you would startle them to death. That is the perfect example of Rowan Williams, our former presiding, our former Archbishop of Canterbury. He is a lovely, lovely, lovely man, but intensely, intensely shy. So he'd be wonderful to talk to one-on-one. But if you were to actually hear him in a big lecture hall, what you get is some kind of trigonometry mixed with astronomy 
in some kind of Arabic dialect that about three people in the room might know what he's talking about. Now, and I say that half-jokingly because I think we as pilgrims, we're called to encounter the Rowan Williams of the world just as we are called to encounter the Michael Curries of the world. Michael Curry speaks to everyone and anyone and is hilarious. In fact, when I, as a pilgrim, went with Carol Graham and David Farrand recently to the 50th anniversary of the Anglican Center in Rome, we were there, and I was seated in this little side transept, perfect views of the altar where there was going to be Evensong, and at one point, I have a picture of it, and I've sworn I will not pass it around other than to give it to him directly, and, his, and you all know Chuck Robertson, his canons, the ordinary, who is a great friend of this parish, and I've said to Chuck, I'll give it to you, and you can give it to Michael, but we took a Carol and I were there sitting sort of sideways, and in front of us, Literally, one row in front of us were the 28, or 28 of the 38 primates who had gathered for the occasion. And every so often, the archbishop of, and the primate of the Southern Cone, which is basically South America, he would every so often turn over, and he and, and, he and Michael Curry would laugh, absolutely burst into laughter, and then one of them would look around and nod, and the other one would pull out his cell phone and take pictures. And then the other one would look around, and, and they would laugh, and then the other one would take out his cell phone and take pictures. And that went on throughout the entire Evensong. Now, you have to think, there is this man who is the leader of our church. He is the equivalent of, not our pope, but he is the equivalent of if there was one Roman Catholic cardinal that oversaw all of North America, that would be that person. And that's Michael Curry for us. He's the presiding bishop. Now, he's the first among equals for all of our bishops, and he is one of the 38 primates worldwide. One of the things about Michael Curry, though, that I find fascinating is that he talks about being a pilgrim. He talks about how his mother and father met, he talks about how the fact that they met and they went to a predominantly white church and that there in that place they found a home and they then raised their children in that Episcopal church. He also talks about the fact that he knew from a very early age that no matter what the people around him looked like, they were his brothers and sisters. He talks about the fact that that was a place called home and that he and all those people around him were pilgrims. And I have to say, I've only had sort of passing conversations with Michael from time to time. We've never sort of talked about our experiences, but if you were to look back over the things that I've written over the last 15 years, 20 years, you would actually think Michael Curry and I had co-authored these things together. I think there is a chance that we as people of faith, in the way that we are groomed to accept other people, and in the way that we live into our commonality, it's only amazing, I think it's an amazing thing that we do in fact become who we say we are, which is pilgrims. We lead, we leave, lead into and live into being those strangers and pilgrims among the people of God. 
Now, when we think about the call, call is an intimate, intimate aspect of our life. Some of us are called to be lawyers from a very young age. Some of us and our children and our grandchildren are called to be in finance. And I have come to realize that there is at least 18 different versions of finance right here in this parish alone. And, but each of us is called to be part of that. There are women in this parish, because there currently are no men, although you gentlemen can join them. There are women in the parish who are sitting back in the very back right this minute. And they are called to be part of our bell choir. There are men and women who are called to be part of our choir, to sing the glory of God week in and week out. And then there are all of us who are called to be here to pray and to join them in that praise. As pilgrims, though, it's different because we know this is home and we have to figure out where it is that the journey will take us next. I have to say, before I came here, Albania had never been on my, I'm not sure, I I knew where Albania was on the map, and I knew a little bit about Albania from the 1980s, but I and the other 18 of us who traveled, the 17 of us that traveled with Chimmy, I don't think we intimately knew the people of Albania. I don't think we knew the great faith of the people in Albania. And I use that as an example to say that when we as Christians walk over and over and over this way of Christ, we have to also be aware that there are other people out there, sometimes walking beside us, sitting beside us, sharing meals with us, who are walking their way of faith, but it may be the way of Muhammad, maybe the way of Buddha. But it doesn't mean that they're any less thoughtful and loving in the way they do. And I say that because on our, one of our very last days, we went to this absolutely exquisite Art Deco Roman Catholic Church to see a series of murals. And the Roman Catholic priest, young guy named, named Father Joseph, or Father Seth, came flying from the front, and I thought, oh, Lord, he's going to run us out. And he didn't. He came out, and he embraced us, and he talked to us, and he told us all about his murals. But what he wanted to talk to us was, where do you come from? Who are your people, basically? How do you worship? What does your liturgy look like? How many people in your congregation? How many attend week to week? That was a big thing for him because he said, I technically have, I am one of the three Catholic, Roman Catholic churches here in Tirana, and I have technically 23,000 people in my congregation because it's sort of more of the English parish model. So he has to marry, bury, baptize everyone within his parish. Now, it does not mean that 23,000 people come to his parish church. In fact, I think for that parish mass that we were about to witness that night just before we left, I think there were 15 people, mostly women of a certain age, in there. Now, you might say the same thing if you came here 
on Wednesday mornings at 7 o'clock. If you were to come, you might find seven people of a certain age here celebrating Eucharist most Wednesday mornings together. What I also found so very amazing was that on one occasion, and we're going to talk about this, or my fellow pilgrims will talk about this when we do our Albanian pilgrimage, our forum. As we began to travel around Albania, I think the word spread (laughs) that there was this group of, of Americans who were staying in Albania longer than most people do. Most people, if they're coming to visit Albania, visit a day in the north, a day in the capital, and a day in the south, and then they're moved on to see Kosovo or Greece or somewhere around. We were there for 12 days, 15, 12 days, 12, 12 days. So in our 12-day journey, I think they began to, well, some of the people began to realize there's something different going on about this group. Why, there's something we should ask. And so they would all ask, why did you come? And then they would find out, and we would talk about how we were there for a spiritual, cultural sojourn, and they'd say, why did you come? And we'd say, we're here with Jimmy. And they'd say, oh, good. And then they'd say, but why did you come? And they're like, we're here with Jimmy, but we're here to learn about you. We're here to learn about your culture. We're here to learn about your many faiths. And on one day, we, one afternoon, we got the call that said, you're going to be meeting with, well, we would like you to come to the Bektashi Temple, which is the center point of international, one of the four sects of the Muslim faith. One of the main four sects is Bektashi. Now, you may not have heard the Bektashi movement. They're very large in Washington and Chicago and a few other places, but their central tenet and their central site or temple is actually in Albania. And so there's a man who is known as the grandfather, and he is known as the Dada Baba. And the Dada Baba requested that we come and meet with him. Now, this is like the Pope reaching out to a group and saying, we hear you're, ta- you're in our country, and we want to know why. Come and talk to us. And so you never know when you, in- when you encounter people what you're going to encounter. We arrived. We went through the temple. We went through our orientation of the Bhaktashi movement, and we t- talked, uh, saw... Um, this is, by the way, this is one of the sects about the, when you hear about the whirling dervishes outside of Turkey, this is the group of the whirling dervishes. This is where, and whirling dervishes is not just an artistic dance they do for tourists in certain parts of the world. It's actually where they have a pole and they actually levitate and dance and dance and dance, and it's a part of spiritual enlightenment. So they're things you learn about other people and other cultures. And when we arrived, the color of deep, deep, deep green, like a lime Christmas green, is all over the temple. It's a color of not only enlightenment, but of pure joy. And the color of pure joy and enlightenment, um, when we walked into the audience chamber, I thought, oh, there'll be a big throne and we'll all stand there and he'll talk at us for a few minutes. That wasn't it at all. We walked into this room. There was a huge room. There were all these couches around the room, 
And in the very corner was this camel-haired cover, sort of our goat-haired covered armchair with like lime green, it looked like goat's wool, or goat, goat's hair that had been dyed lime green. And when he came in, he walked around the circle and he spoke to every, he went to the left of his chair and he went, to, went all around the entire circle saying something, shaking hands and saying something to every single person around the room until he got to me. And I think, he, I, think I shocked him because he had been told the priest will be to your right. And when he got to me, he sort of looked at me and then went right onto his chair. Now, most of the group afterwards said, we think that he thought that I was going to be this much older, very much a bearded fella that was going to be there. Of course, I'm clean shaven and I'm much younger. I'm probably half again younger than he was. And so it was an amazing thing, though, that he began just to talk to us, to talk about enlightenment, to talk about what we shared in common, to talk about who we are as the people of God on a journey. I think at heart, that's what all of us is called, or all of us are called to be on a journey. Each of us does that journey differently. Some of us, to go to Jerusalem is your ultimate, ultimate that you want to go and experience the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. For others of us, it might be to go to Canterbury. For others, it might to actually go to take three weeks out of your life and to hike along the Santiago de Compostela, the road from the border of France and Spain all the way to Santiago. For others, it might be, for Muslims, it's to go to Mecca. And so as you gather week in and week out in your church, I think it's important for us to continue to think about where is it that we can experience something different in our lives? Where is it that God calls us? Now, I described the Dada Baba. He was a man. He could have been probably Pope Francis's age. He had a long, long graying beard, and when he sat in his chair, he looked around at us, and he began to speak to his translator. But every so often, he would grab his phone, which was on the little table beside him, and it was constantly going off. And he had this cell phone that was constantly going off. Now, you don't expect that, I don't expect that the world leaders, if they're going to be meeting with people, that the phone's going to go off, or that they're going to constantly respond to the phone in the middle of an audience. But you know what? He was being very modern and he was being very authentic. And that, I think, is probably the most important piece of being a pilgrim. It's about being authentic. It's about being who you are, sharing that with other people, and then allowing them to share that with you. So that as they are pilgrims, as they begin to experience who you are, They've taken just, a much, just as much away from you as you have taken from being there in their culture. I would, I would like to think that we made a difference for the people in Albania when we met them along the way. I know that over the centuries, as it were, um, I know that over the decades, 
the pilgrim groups have made an amazing difference with the people we've encountered in France or in Germany or in Israel or in Ireland um, or in England. Because in each one of those encounters, we make friendships. We make a point in time where in that time and in that place, we have an experience. Sharon Snap and I went to represent the church um, along with Jacqueline Caulfold and with Carol Graham for the very first time we went for the Compass Rose Society a few years back. And you never know what's going to happen when you encounter people along the way. For us, the Archbishop welcomed every new group of people, of pilgrims, of parishes, into the fold. And so you got a photo with the Archbishop and a quick conversation. And I think they were moving through about a minute apiece. Snap a picture, he would say, oh, how nice to have you here, and they'd move on. Now, we had Jacqueline Caulfault with us. And Jacqueline Caulfault had already made numerous friends along our way because Jacqueline Caulfault has a very traditional hairstyle of it was a huge, huge bouffant. And when we all immediately went up and shook hands and said hello to the archbishop, the archbishop immediately stepped back and looked, and he's, of course, he is much shorter, and he, of course, immediately looked up and down at Jackie and said, love the hair. And then he asked her, which I thought was, was very dear, he says, how long have you been a Christian? He went straight from hair to Christian, and they had this intense conversation, and, and Sharon and Carol and I were standing there with him, and then he said a few things to each of us, and then our moment of audience with the archbishop in that moment was over, and we moved on. Now, soon after that trip, Jackie died, Thank you. and I think that Jackie would have said, as a very, very faithful Christian who in her time attended seven different churches at different points, um, she moved around to figure out who was preaching what, who was celebrating what in different ways. She was the ultimate pilgrim. And I bring her in to say, Jackie offers each of us something about being authentic. Because in that moment that the archbishop looked her up and down and said, love the hair, and then in the next instant said, how long have you been a Christian? It was one of those moments, sort of a transcendent moment, where we can all share, those of us who, who were there together, know that was one of those highlights for Jackie in her life. She talked about it often. So today, I'll just leave you by saying, you often hear me quote from T.S. Eliot. And T.S. Eliot talks about being at the beginning and the end. He talks about how we are constantly searching for that place as children of the apple tree. I think that's who we each are, to be searchers, to be travelers, to be people always looking for the Garden of Eden. But sometimes... It's just okay to be who we are in the here and now. And we have to keep both of those in tension.
that yes, it's okay to be pilgrims and travelers, but it's okay also just to be here in this place, sharing the love of God together. So thank you. those of you who look forward to hearing about seeing pictures and hearing about the experiences of other pilgrims on February the 29th, the, the pilgrims who traveled to Albania will be presenting their experiences here in the nave. So thank you.